If this is your first time here, let me introduce myself. Uh, my name is Ryan. I serve as one of the pastors here. And today, uh, we're diving into a section of scripture that's very near and dear uh, to my heart. And so I'm excited to launch into this series in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And as I was thinking about our time together, click quickly what came to mind is that as a child of the 80s and 90s, I have fond memories of my deep dream to be like Mike. Man, I remember one Christmas in particular. All I wanted for Christmas was a pair of Air Jordans. And my mom came to me and she said, you know, you could get the Air Jordans, but there's a sale at JCPenney's on the Reebok pumps. And if you get the Reebok pumps, you can also get a Star Wars video game for your Nintendo. Oh, Star Wars. Before I know it, I took the bait and I said, fine, fine, get me the pumps. So I get the pumps and I go out to Patriots Park on a warm fall day. And there I am, ready to take my first step into NBA greatness. I squeeze those little basketballs. I can feel the air snug around my foot. This was my moment. I had my eye on the prize. I start to dribble the ball. I go, I go to shoot. And I tripped on my own feet and fell flat on my face. And I remember thinking this moment of panic of, oh no, I got the wrong shoes. And then I realized it probably has nothing to do with the shoes. You know, the reality is I'm not the most aerodynamic individual. And that probably had more to do than the brand that was on the side of my shoe. You know, I wish I could tell you that those moments end uh, when you're a kid on a basketball court in some park somewhere, but they don't. The reality is, in our lives, there comes many moments where we'll come to places where a dream that we held to uh, falls apart. Or despite our best efforts to experience joy and freedom and transformation in an area of our life, when doing it in our own power, we fall flat again and again and again. Maybe we had a dream for the future of something we wanted to see accomplished. And yet, despite our best efforts, it didn't quite work out. And it is in those moments when life seems to fall apart, when the dreams that we hold to are shattered into a million pieces, that we find ourselves on one of the most sacred grounds that we will ever trod in the journey of following Jesus. And I'm convinced it's here where the words of Jesus that we're going to look at today are so incredibly important. Now, if you're just joining us, we have launched into this series uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. And uh, scholars, as they have looked at this section known as the Sermon on the Mount, have, have referred to it as things like Jesus' discipleship manifesto or Jesus' take on metaphysics. They are no doubt the most brilliant words that have ever been penned or spoken in human history. And here in the Beatitudes, we're invited into Jesus' way of looking at life. We're invited into Jesus' perspective of, of what it means to be human and what it means to walk in light of this beautiful mystery that we call the kingdom of God. And it's here that as we come to the first of these what we call Beatitudes, we call them Beatitudes because the Latin word uh, for uh, blessed is Beatitus, and uh, we see this rhythm in each of these sections. And as you might recall from last week, the point here is that it's an invitation to see life through a new lens. In fact, what I want to suggest to you is the key idea of the message today. Kind of the core of where we're going to go is simply this, that people who see their spiritual need are blessed because 
They're freed from trying to be worthy in their own power. People who see their spiritual need are blessed because they're freed from trying to be worthy in their own power. And as this passage unfolds, as Jesus takes us into this beatitude, I believe he dives towards one of the deepest experiences of what it means to be human. The way in which we wrestle with our brokenness and our shame. And it's here that Jesus gives us a powerful invitation to step into the reality of the kingdom. And so today, we're going to spend our entire message just focused on these words of chapter 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what's Jesus saying here? And I think the first thing is we have to start with, well, what in the world does it mean to be blessed? And it's going to be an invitation to redefine our understanding of blessing. Let me ask you, when you think of the word blessed, what's the image that comes to mind for you? I mean, when I think of blessing, the thing that comes to my mind or is some kind of like circumstantial or relational prosperity. For me, the first image that comes to mind when I think of blessed is I picture a grandfather sitting in this like chair with, you know, tons of grandkids uh, sitting around him, smiling and laughing like the family is good. Still for others, I think when we think of blessing, we equate blessing with some kind of circumstantial or material prosperity. And yet, what's interesting to me is as you look at this list of the Beatitudes, the way in which Jesus redefines our understanding of blessing. Did you notice who's blessed? The people who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are undergoing persecution. And if, if we fit that into the norm of what we think blessing is all about, we scratch our heads saying, Jesus, really? But Jesus, I believe, had a very different understanding of what blessing really looks like. In fact, this word for blessing in the Greek is a fascinating one. It carries with it this sense of congratulations of the highest kind. Uh, whenever I think of this word blessed, the image that always comes to me is those commercials on TV when Ed McMahon shows up on somebody's porch with the giant check, you know? The confetti's going off, like everybody's freaking out, the whole neighborhood is gathering around to see this thing because this is the granddaddy of all prizes. I mean, this isn't somebody that just, you know, uh, won a free can of Coke at the grocery store. This is the person who has won the greatest prize that life has to offer. And that is the term that Jesus uses to describe people who are blessed throughout these Beatitudes. They're, they're, they're not the ones who have just received some small prize, but they have come back to the essence. They have come back to the blessing of everything of what it means to be human and to begin to experience a right relationship with God. That's why then I would offer this definition of blessedness, that blessedness is the confidence that the abundance of God's kingdom is greater than the struggle of the moment. You see, the reason why the poor in spirit can be blessed is they can understand that even in the midst of seeing how messed up and broken I really am, there's something greater at work. There's a greater reality that's playing itself out that's greater than all the places where I see my weakness and my frailty. And though I come face to face with something I would rather avoid, I find an amazing and beautiful joy that defies explanation. 
And perhaps there is no place where that comes more in view than when we begin to talk about poverty in spirit. Now, before we go there, can I suggest to you that as we begin to talk about this poverty in spirit, it's important to understand what Jesus expects us to do with these Beatitudes. You might recall from last week that, you know, when I've often heard the Beatitudes taught, the way I hear it taught is, well, these are the attitudes that you're supposed to be. You know, these are an invitation to a new morality. But the trouble is, later in the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. So what's Jesus saying here? I think what Jesus is reminding us is he's inviting us into a new way of looking at life. Uh, what I called last week gospel goggles, a new way of looking at how the world works. And so the invitation of these beatitudes is an invitation to see and align with the work of God in our lives. And there is no place where that will become more clear than in recognizing that blessedness flows from our dependence on God. You know, the people that Jesus says is blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You ever ask the question, what's, what's Jesus talking about here? Again, I think many times when I've heard this particular beatitude taught, the way I hear it taught is, well, Jesus is saying, look, you are blessed when you are materially poor. And yet the Greek doesn't seem to support that. In fact, uh, let me geek out here for a little bit. In the Greek, this phrase, poor in spirit, is actually a modified Greek phrase, hoitokoi tonumitiki, uh, this idea, the poor ones. Uh, who are poor in spirit. So who are these poor ones? Well, what's interesting about this word for poverty is that in, in the Aramaic and in the Greek, it carries with it not just the sense of uh, someone who doesn't have something, but the painful lack of their, in, but the painful reality of their ability to do anything about it. You know, if you've ever had that situation where you're walking alongside a loved one and a devastating diagnosis comes, and the doctors say, there's nothing more that we can do, we get a glimpse into this kind of poverty. Or maybe uh, there comes a time in your life when you've hurt another person and you try to pursue reconciliation in that relationship, but the wound was so great and so deep that it seems that there's nothing that can be done. And you're just left with the breach and the hurt of that relationship. That's this kind of poverty. You see, it, it, it leads some scholars to translate this phrase poor in spirit for wretched. It, it's not just that we lack something, but it's the total inability in and of ourselves to set that lack right. So then what is a poverty of spirit? I'd suggest this, that poverty of spirit then is the humble recognition of our desperate and total need uh, for God's mercy. You know, as I was looking at this idea of poverty and spirit this week, I was reminded of the words of Walt Disney when he once said, if you can dream it, you can do it. And while I love the human optimism in that phrase, that's an absolute lie. <laughs> Tell that to the person who did everything in their power to achieve a certain place in their career success, and yet their dreams fall through their fingers. Tell that to the person that had, uh, wanted to see a relationship work out, and, and, and yet because of that, the, something happened, and 
because of brokenness, that relationship fell apart. Tell that to the person who says, you know, I'm going to follow God better in this area. And despite their best efforts, they come back to the same place of brokenness again and again and again. Friends, I would suggest to you that poverty of spirit is one of the most fundamental experiences of what it means to be a human being. And this week, I found myself asking, where in Scripture are there pictures of poverty in spirit? And as I asked that question, I found myself again at the moment in which this poverty of spirit first enters into the story of humanity. All the way back at our beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I want to spend some time kind of connecting some dots in the larger biblical story. So track with me as we make our way through this. If you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know that God creates Adam and he sets him in the Garden of Eden. He takes this lump of dirt and he, and he gathers it together and he breathes into him the breath of life. This being that he's created in his image, connected for relationship and fellowship with himself. God, Adam and Eve walk in the garden. They, they exist in this perfect relationship. It is a beautiful experience of what life was always supposed to be. God, God and man walking together. But as you know, this story takes a tragic turn. In Genesis chapter 3, the evil one in the form of a serpent comes into the garden and he says to Eve, 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 has God really said that you should not eat of the, knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No. No, here's what's really going on. God knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him, able to know the difference between good and evil. In fact, it's really interesting. If you read there in Genesis 3, one of the comments that's made is that Eve, seeing that the fruit was delightful for making one wise reaches out and takes that fruit and eats. And she gives to her husband and he does the same. And for the first time, what happens in the existence of humanity is that humanity in an act of cosmic treason steps out of the kingdom of God and into the kingdom of self, the kingdom of this world. And it is in that moment then, compared to the holy, righteous perfection of God, that humanity is exposed in her shame. Naked. And, and it's interesting. Once Adam and Eve eat that fruit, what's the first thing that they do? Do you remember? They hide. They hide. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 7, we're told uh, that they hide and then they stitch these fig leaves together on themselves and to cover their shame. Fast forward, God is walking in the garden to, to have this relationship with this creation he's made. And he asks of them a very curious question. Where are you? Now, I want to just pause for a second here. Think about all the questions that God has at his disposal at this moment. What have you done? You idiot? Are you happy now? Yeah, let's see what happens when you try and do life apart from me. Tell me how that works for you, okay? 
But that's not God's question. God's question is, where are you? He knows everything that they've just done. And yet he is still communicating his desire for relationship with them. And you know what I find so curious about this scene is the way in which Adam and Eve, hearing the presence of God, try to cover themselves. Do you remember how they tried to do it? With fig leaves. They stitched together fig leaves. Now, um, I'm no agriculture expert, so you can help me out with this. What happens to leaves? They wither. They die. And humanity is doing something apart from God where they're grabbing the best thing that they can find in their own power, and yet the reality is in their attempt to cover themselves, it only further exposes their shame. You ever have that experience in your journey? You know, you've done something wrong and you try to make it right with the other person, but you only make it more wrong. And your shame is exposed. Or you worry about uh, being exposed. And so, you know, you, you try to build this picture of yourself. And yet people sometimes see through it. And it only makes the reality of shame even more real. Friends, I have watched dear friends as they have come from unspeakable things that have been done to them. Is they carry an image of themselves that is anything but who God sees them as because they're afraid that they might be seen, that they might be exposed. You see, what makes poverty of spirit poverty of spirit is that it's the willingness to say, I am messed up and there is nothing that I can do to fix myself. In fact, it's interesting because as this story goes on, um, we find something very curious in verse 21. After God has outlined all the details of the curse and, and what will come as a result of humanity's decision to step out apart from him. We find this detail that God kills an animal and he takes its skin and he puts it on humanity. Scholars and theologians, I think, have been right to point out that this is likely a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that would come. That God, seeing humanity's to total inability to be right with himself in his own power, would one day become that animal, the Lamb of God, that he would lay down his life for you and I, not because we had it together, but because we never could. And as I began to look at the way in which the church has depicted this scene throughout the ages, I found something I'd never seen before. In almost every early church fresco of this scene, you find a detail just as in this one. How is the clothing getting on Adam and Eve? God's putting it on. God is the one who is clothing them. Think about what that says. It's a powerful statement that when we understand our poverty in spirit, we discover the faithfulness of a God who clothes us, not in the moments that we have it together, not in the moments that we've managed or mitigated our shame, but when we're willing to come in an attitude of poverty and surrender and say just how much we need him. That's why I love the words of Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the message when he puts it this way. 
You're blessed when you're at the end of the rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You know, as I've, I've been thinking what this poverty in spirit looks like, this week I found myself asking, I wonder what a poverty, of, a failure to have a poverty in spirit really costs us. Can I get a volunteer? You didn't know I'd do this, did you? All right, come on up here, Dan. Guys, let's give Daniel a hand. All right, Daniel, I want you to hold this. No, 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 I want you to hold this. Okay, hold that. Hold that. What's that like? It's so heavy. It's so heavy. You know, the reality is, when we refuse to be poor in spirit, this is what we do. We put together images of ourselves that are anything. No, 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 keep it out there. That are, that are anything but who we really are. Rather than being exposed, we convince ourselves that if we're just the good religious one, that we'll be worthy of God's love. Dude, you're slacking. Get out there. <laughs> or we tell ourselves, hey, if I'm, if I'm perfect, then I never run the risk of anybody telling me I'm not worthy. Or, dude, come on. Or we tell ourselves, look, if I just have a certain level of success, if I just get the, number, the letters behind my name, if I just reach a certain number in my bank account, then I'll be able to prove to everybody how worthy I am and how much I deserve the love of God. Tell me what that's like. It's hard. It's hard. What are you feeling right now? I don't know. It's just like so heavy. It's so heavy. Let me ask you something. As you look at those false selves in your life, would you say the same thing? It's so heavy. It's exhausting. In fact, I'm going to take this back from Daniel. Let's give him a hand. That's right. It's so heavy. It's exhausting. Friends, can I tell you that trying to be right in your relationship with God, in your own power, the attempt to try and prove your worthiness apart from his grace is probably the closest thing to the experience of hell on earth that we will ever know. And just like Adam and Eve, we stitch together fig leaves like, like an armor. And all the while, we come to God and we say to God, here I am, God, I want to be in relationship with you. As if this was us. And sometimes I wonder if God wouldn't say back to us, I can't have a relationship with that, it's a kettlebell. I can't have a relationship with this, it's not even real. For those of you that have done the follow curriculum, <clears throat> you, we looked at different idols as a part of that. Can I suggest to you, that when you find your idol, your false self is the priest that you build to worship at its feet. In fact, if you want to know what your false self is, can I suggest you a couple quick tests? Number one, what are you terrified of people finding out about you? That you're selfish? You're prideful? Maybe you carry the image of those words that somebody spoke over your life decades ago, that you're not worthy and so you kill yourself off because you just are one mistake away from being found out. 
Friends, can I tell you, so much freedom in the spiritual journey comes when we're willing to set this to the side. When we embrace this beautiful mystery that we are more broken than we could ever understand. And we are more, more beloved than we will ever understand. And when we hold those two mysteries, we enter into this reality that we call the gospel. Now, real quick, the second test of your false self. In the moments that you feel insecure, what do you use in order to make yourself feel better? You go back to what you've accomplished. Maybe you even step into the role of being the victim. What's the bother of even trying? What do you look to in order to find peace apart from a relationship with God? And friends, there are a few things that are more destructive in our spiritual journey than the existence and the place of these things. Now, before we leave this place, I, I just want to add one other element here. And it's that not only does the presence of a refusal to be poor in spirit affect our relationship with God, it, reflects our, it affects our relationships with one another. Friends, so often as I have pastored and led people through a community, one of the deep desires of the human heart is to experience connection with others. But can we be honest? That's terrifying sometimes. Because what if people really saw us? In fact, I have watched at other churches that I've been a part of where I would say keeping up a pretense, keeping up an image was so incredibly important. That's why one of the things that I love about Fellowship Nashville, and I pray continues to be the case for decades to come, is that we are a church where it's okay not to be okay. That we're a church where it's safe to say, I have questions and I don't understand. Will you walk with me in that? That we're a church where it's okay to struggle and say, I'm struggling with chronic pain. I'm struggling with a mental illness. I'm struggling with an addiction. But I believe that the power of God and Christian community invites me to see my brokenness through the lens of the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. Friends, oftentimes what keeps us from close relationships with others is we're afraid that if we put this down, what might people see? And community begins in the risk of coming not who we think we should be, but as we are. Is it any wonder then that we're blessed? You know, it's this uh, passage uh, goes on. Jesus says that those who are poor in spirit, are blessed. In fact, I would even say this, that what makes the poor in spirit blessed is that they're in a place where they no longer have to hide. Notice, as you look at the words of Jesus here in chapter 5, verse 3, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch the timing on that? It's not, the kingdom of heaven is coming in a life to come. Or the kingdom of heaven is something that is far and removed. But the blessing of the presence of the kingdom of heaven is something that is invited to be a present reality in the life of the follower of Jesus. So what's the kingdom of heaven? And you might recall from last week that the kingdom of heaven is the experienced rule of God. 
The space is where humanity sees and aligns with the transforming work of God in our lives. The kingdom of heaven is the place where we step back under the reign and the rule of God and acknowledge just how desperately we need his mercy and his grace. Here's a fair question. When was the last time we were desperate for God? I mean, we know what it looks like to come to church. We know what it looks like to be in relationship with others. But when was the last time that's so confronted with your brokenness and frailty, you had to simply say, God, if you don't show up, this whole thing's going to fall apart. And friends, can I tell you, that is the human condition. It's just there are times in our life when that comes into bold relief and we see it for what it is. And that's what makes us blessed because we finally find the freedom to step off the treadmill. So how does the blessing of the kingdom free us? Let me suggest a couple of things. Number one, it frees us from what's often called imposter syndrome. Psychologists have noted over the last few decades, this tendency, particularly among those who are successful or high achieving, this tendency towards what they call the imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome is basically, no matter a person's success or accomplishment, there's never the ability to rest in it because there's a constant fear that they're always one mistake away from being found out as a fraud. And so they can never rest. But friends, when we come to the place of recognizing that I'm not God, I'm not in control, and I'm broken. We finally find the freedom to stop and discover what real grace really looks like. Real quick here, let me, let me throw this in as well. I think the reason why we sometimes have a tendency to stay trapped in that imposter syndrome is we avoid what I sometimes call the dark side of grace. You might say, grace, how does grace have a dark side? Well, it does, and it's just I do. And it's that if grace is entirely about the grace and the mercy of God, that there's nothing that I can do to earn it, then friends, there's nothing I can do to earn it. And that is terrifying. Because as a human being, I'm used to being able to work hard in order to demand the love of other people, to make bids at the grace and the mercy of Uh, other people or to find healing in different relationships. But if I acknowledge I'm broken, I have to sit in the painful reality that I am more messed up than I could ever imagine. And God is more good than I'll ever understand. But can I tell you with that comes a phenomenal blessing because it frees us from wasted joy. This week, as I looked at this beatitude, I was so quickly reminded, both in my own life and in the lives of people I know, the high cost and price that has come in humanity's refusal to embrace our poverty of spirit. Friends, I have watched lives self-destruct because people were so desperate to prove that they were good enough 
only to realize that God had already declared them worthy. I look at the places in my own life where rather than sitting in intimacy and connection with God, I would rather prove to him how much I deserve him. Because I'm afraid. What if he really isn't that good? But he is. But he is. And this week, I found myself at one point in my study just weeping. In all the attempts that we make to prove our worthiness from God, we lose sight of the beauty and the work that he already says. You're worthy. You're mine and you're loved. And he calls out across all of our temptations to run from that reality and he asks of us the same question as he did in the garden. Where are you? This week, I think ultimately, the question that we are left with in this beatitude is where is Jesus inviting each of us to repent of self-reliance and receive his grace? Where in your journey is the temptation to build the front of, of what it is that you think you need to be and it keeps you from actually being with God and others? Maybe you're here And you would recognize that there are places of my life where I have tried to say to God, I am going to get this right in my own power. I'll, I'll be less selfish. I'll be more caring. I'll be more compassionate. And yet it only reveals your brokenness more and more and more. And as the fig leaf withers, our shame is only further exposed. Friends, what if today we began to accept that fig leaves aren't going to cover it? This is, this is who we are, and this is who he is. And we begin to find the invitation into a life of freedom and joy. Friends, this is why I believe that this particular beatitude is the gateway to all the others. Because in this beatitude, we acknowledge, I need God. The way I'm looking at the world is fundamentally broken. Self-effort, the false selves that I build, are about as effective as Reebok pumps to transform and shape our lives. Today, where might Jesus be inviting you to hear again the words of this powerful beatitude? Oh, let me tell you, you're blessed when you know how jacked up you are because you're finally free from trying to do it in your own power and you discover that the grace of God is really enough. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. As they do, between you and God, would he bring to mind to you some area of your life where he's inviting you to see this reality of the kingdom in your journey? To trust that your hope and joy isn't found in in the image of who you think you could be, but in the declaration of who he's already said that you are. His son, his daughter. 
Friends, and I suspect for many of us in this room today, when I say you are a son or a daughter of God, it is something we know here. But what would it look like if it began to sink in here? And we trusted that the God of mercy and grace is inviting us into transformation, into freedom, into life. Friends, we're messed up. And God knows it. What's the point of hiding it? What would it look like if we took him at his word? If we took him at the promise of who he said he is? And as he cries out against all the brokenness of our life, where are you? We simply say, I'm here. I'm here. Be glorified. Let's pray. So Jesus, we come before you as the poor in spirit. God, we're not God. We're not in control. We're only human. And yet the reality is we are so much more because of who you are. We are so much more because you created us in your image, because you call us your own. And how, God, I pray that the armor and the walls that we use for self-protection would fall off like scales from our eyes. That we would find a freedom and a confidence and a joy to no longer carry the heavy burden of who we think we need to be and instead receive the grace of who we already are. Jesus, teach us to see, teach us to align, teach us to live in the freedom of what's true about us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In your name, amen. Let's sing.